0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. friends welcome back to the show um i am super excited to bring you this week's episode um it is with dan dan is an herbalist forager um just a really awesome guy and actually this um interview was relatively unplanned i was hanging out with my friend uh chris who's got a podcast called tangentially speaking um and i listened to him and dan's conversation and at the end was like uh, you should come on my podcast too, because you 're the bomb, um, so a couple of days later, he came on my show, and we ended up covering totally different um, topics and had an, a completely different discussion, which is always really cool to me, right? like if you have a conversation with the same person, um, but two different people are having that talk, and the conversation goes into completely different ways um, so that 's what happened i don 't think Chris has released his episode with Dan yet, but check in in the next few weeks or so um, if you want to learn more about Dan Uh, again between the two of us (laughs) I think covered quite a bit about what he does and what he's all about Um, this episode was really awesome Um, I have really enjoyed being a little bit more fluid and unstructured with my conversations with people. Um, I think it started when I did my Patreon episode with my friend Autumn, which if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. You can go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. Uh, I'm gonna be I post a bonus episode there every month, but I think I'm gonna be doing a lot of just like conversations with my friends that don't really have a theme like the main podcast. So just kind of seeing where the conversation goes. Um, having said that though, doing that podcast with her kind of made me a little bit more comfortable being less prepared for episodes. So several of the ones that I have coming up, I just kind of winged it, um, winged it, wung it, winged it. I don't even know. Uh, anyway, uh, it's been fun and cool. And I think like less structure and less preparedness kind of leads to, um, more possibilities. So, I love where we go in this conversation. I won't talk too much about it because you'll hear it. Um, But I did want to talk about this idea that in listening back to the episode and thinking about it after recording it really struck me around the nature of progress. So Dan and I talk a little bit about um, how to move forward, right? So we're talking about the earth, we're talking about um, the planet, the environment, and Like, Do we just give up and accept defeat, or do we try and make a change? Do we try and go backwards and correct for mistakes we've made in the past, such as the agricultural revolution, etc.? We talk a lot about that, um, but what it actually reminded me of, and what I wanted to read you some passages from was uh, the play Angels in America. So if you listen to episode number one, I talked a little bit about this uh, in that episode because in my intro, at the very end, I say the great work begins. And um, for those of you that don't know, Angels in America is a very long play by Tony Kushner. It was turned into an HBO special um, back in, it was 15 years ago, so whenever the hell that was. I know I was 15, though. Anyway, uh, I use a phrase in the intro, the great work begins, which be- comes from Angels in America. And uh, I actually found out later that it's actually a Carl Jung quote talking about like the great work of the unconscious and of dream space. Um, but in Angels in America, it's used at the very end of the play to talk about like the great work of humanity and that we are going to heal uh, and move forward. Anyway, highly recommend. I think it's one of the most brilliant pieces of writing ever. Uh, And the HBO special was actually pretty fucking awesome. Um, It's got a lot of amazing actors in it and was done really well and completely blew my mind when I was 15. So I saw the HBO special before I actually went back and read the play. They're a little bit different, but they stayed pretty um, true to form but one of the so the play follows uh a lot of different stories but it takes place in the 80s during the AIDS crisis and one of the characters main characters prior is um basically an angel comes down to visit him and says he's a prophet and uh we kind of see the unfolding of how this occurs throughout the play and eventually, at the end, um, I'll try not to give too much away, but he goes up to heaven and talks to all of these angels, and they basically explain to him that like the reason that the AIDS crisis occurred and all this destruction in our world is as a result of humans progressing too quickly, or just progressing at all, that we move forward too quickly, that we created all these problems, and that God is punishing us. Or no, I'm sorry, God abandoned earth and no longer was protecting us. And so all this terrible shit happened and he's up in heaven and he's talking to these angels and they get into this whole discussion about the nature of humanity as it relates to progress. And I will read you some passages from this because it certainly relates to what Dan and I talk about. Um, So prior is explaining uh, when they ask him to stop and make all of humanity stop moving he says, we can't just stop. We're not rocks. Progress, migration, motion is modernity. It's animate. It's what living things do. We desire, even if all we desire is stillness, it's still desire for. Even if we go faster than we should, we can't wait. And wait for what? Uh and it's so interesting because I struggle with this concept all the time. It's super nuanced and paradoxical, which I think all of the best things in the world are. But clearly, like as a species, we are evolving, and we are progressing. I, you know, time is moving forward. We can't really prevent that. It is, I guess, a choice in terms of how we are moving forward. Now, I guess this could beg the question about whether or not we have free will, which I'm not going to get into. But the fact of the matter is we're moving forward towards something, whether we're in control or not in control of it. Um, and I would, I would venture to say, like, we are in control of a lot of it. We are in control of our choices in terms of how we live our lives. I think a lot of this podcast was me trying to say, like, hey, we don't have to live like everyone wants us to live. We can do something different. But we are stuck in a cycle of progression, or cycle, I guess is the wrong word, this pattern of movement, uh, and this pattern of life and wanting more of it and living. Right. So like, how can we harness this movement, this progression in a beneficial way? And does part of that forward movement require some destruction, right? Like do we need to fuck shit up a lot in order to recognize it's bad? and is that part of the progress? Um, I'm not really sure I don't have the answer. Um, but anyway, uh, prior in the same scene, later he he all you know, after hearing everything everyone has to say, after considering all the options, he's like given this like prophetic book. And he's supposed to go back down to Earth and deliver this message that humans have to stop moving. Um, He says, uh, Bless me anyway. I want more life. I can't help myself. I do. I've lived through such terrible times, and there are people who live through much, much worse. But you see them living anyway, when they're more spirit than body, more sores than skin. When they're burned and in agony, when flies lay eggs in the corner of the eyes of their children, they live. Death usually has to take life away. I don't know if that's just the animal. I don't know if it's not braver to die, but I recognize the habit, the addiction to being alive. We live past hope. If I can find hope anywhere, that's it. That's the best I can do. It's so much not enough, so inadequate, but... Bless me anyway. I want more life. I just think that's one of the most uh, beautiful, poignant pieces of writing. I think in the whole play, actually, it's those two passages, the one about progress and the one I just read. I have a bookcase in my house that when I was going through a really hard time, I printed out like all of these quotes and all of these images that inspired me and made me feel good and those are two i think those are actually or no there's another one from angels in america too quite a bit of angels in america in my life it's one of those awesome things like books and writing are my favorite when you continue to gain more insight about it as time goes on right and especially because i came upon this at age 15 the amount that i'm able to absorb and understand as the years has gone on it just keeps going talk about progress Um, so anyway, I really recommend angels in America. If you don't want to sit and read a play, you can find the HBO special. It's two parts. I think it's six hours total, but it's so worth it. Um, just a really cool, uh, magical world to get lost in. And I think although it takes place a long or not a long time ago, but back in the eighties in a different time, so many of the same concepts can be applied to where we are in our world now. And I guess the last thing I'll say about all of that is, you know, I find myself as a millennial, as a young person in a really interesting spot. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are older than me, who I think it's a lot easier and more convenient for them to kind of be like, well, I'm not going to be here for all of this destruction, so uh, sorry that I'll miss it, but like... Not really gonna spend the rest of my life trying to make a difference. And as a young person, like, we don't have that luxury. I don't have that luxury. I mean, maybe some people just don't give a shit. I assume if you're listening to this show, you're not one of those people. But I give a shit, you know, and I have a life ahead of me. And I'm not willing to just stop, you know, I do feel like in some respect that I have a responsibility. And I think a lot of us have a responsibility to, uh, Dan says on the podcast, you know, like, it doesn't really matter if we're not making a difference, we're all going to die. But like, why not? What's the other option doing nothing? Like who really cares if it's making a difference or not? I don't know how to live. And it sounds like Dan doesn't either. We don't know how to live without at least trying to live the most authentic, meaningful life that we possibly can for ourselves and for humanity. So I don't love being, you know, naively optimistic, but I care and I definitely feel like I'm going to live my life in a way that you know, hopefully makes even one little speck of difference, Um, even if that's just inspiring other people to be more vulnerable and speak their truth and live authentically. Um, But I certainly want more life, just like prior. (laughs) I've been through a lot of shitty times, and life is beautiful, and I think has become more beautiful as a result of, of witnessing that sort of pain and destruction. So on that uplifting note, um, I will let you guys listen to this episode, uh, as a reminder, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com uh, slash Anya Cates, keep this podcast ad and bullshit free, and, uh, I will catch you on the other side. Cool. Okay. So we are recording. I'm here with Dan. Hello. You are a herbalist, forager, van dweller. What else?
1: Well, I really am a big fan of uh, the thought that other people define... Self, and it's very tricky to try to define yourself. I kind of shun away all these like self titles. <clears throat> I'm interested in yoga, but I'm not a yogi. I'm interested in shamanism, but I'm not a shaman. You know, I'm interested in spirituality. I'm interested in culture and philosophy, and I'm trying to see how those all can intersect into some more holistic practice and try to kind of uncover some of the maps that maybe our ancestors had that now we don't have access to, but it's obviously. Uh, It's obvious that we're suffering as a result of not having that. So I like the idea of herbalist and forager, and that's pretty good enough. (laughs) Pretty good enough.
0: Yeah, I actually always talk about that through the lens of astrology. There's um, a point in the chart which most people refer to as career, but of course career is this completely modern, socially constructed phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So it's like the better way to look at it is like who we are from a social distance like, what is the role that we play in the world? And if and hopefully it's a combination of a bunch of different things. It's like our life path uh, more than anything else. And hopefully our quote unquote career is aligning with what that is. But, you know, who people see us as is not necessarily what career we have.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I like this idea of, you know, the the village healer in the tribe never considered themselves a healer, just did their work with their head down, and other people, through the results of what they experienced, called them as such. And so now we go to, you know, healer school in a weekend course, and we have these self-titles, and um, of course that's great to find ourselves, but it's also dangerous to sort of muddy the waters with things so i think about like a yogi in india could have practiced yoga with his guru for 45 years and come to america like i've i've received a vision to teach and the people like do you have your yoga training yoga teacher training you know and so we're in a in a position of I think the organic natural process of nature uh shows us self-evidence and then we try to name it and sometimes we sort of strip things of meaning and um you know it's it's also a matter of how you know I like the idea those who know don't say and those who say don't know and so the the, the di- diversity that we are as an individual, we don't have one role. And so I like that game with plants because we often think of plants as one certain function. What is this good for? And so I really rag on that, like at my classes where it's like, well, imagine if the plant's looking at you going, what are you good for? And it's like population, you know, or like mating or, you know, we, we have many roles, each of us. So it's good to try to expand those those roles and not get stuck in the idea that I am my career.
0: And I would say it probably actually goes both ways because if we go too far in the opposite direction, then we're not prioritizing like skill and learning and experience and defining who and what we are.
1: Right. But maybe if you were out there blasting and helping people, it would just be self-evident, you know? So it really depends on what our career is, you know?
0: Yeah. So yesterday you were saying um, how, what you're teaching was almost like five-year-old level knowledge. And I'm curious, it got me thinking about like, when did you first gain this insight? Was it something that as a kid you were really into the outdoors or was it a result of having experiences that made you look further into plants?
1: Cool. So yeah, like I was born in 1983 and so I'm 35. And at that time, I didn't have the internet until age 15. And before that, it was like your mom, kicks you outside and and tells you to go play and so i had like gi joes ninja turtles and plants and my mom gardened and so it was totally normal that there was a herb garden there so i grew up with plants around and that was seen as normal and my mom had house plants and um, i had like a cornfield behind my house which was probably pretty sprayed but i didn't know it at the time good old new jersey and uh So, you know, just having the exposure and the experience, um, my dad built a treehouse on this land. And when I went up there for about a week in the year, there was this plant called black locust. And it makes these beautiful flowers and they reek, they smell so strong. And so I remember that scent in my childhood. And then coming up to it again and smelling it, like reestablishing the connection with it years and years later, it sort of brought me back to the nostalgia or this certain feeling that I I have trouble describing, this sort of deja vu, nostalgic feeling. And it sort of felt like uh, tentacles back into that connection. And so I feel like what I've been trying to do is reclaim what was seen as normal in my childhood uh, upbringing and realized eventually that that's not always the case and that kids are very disconnected and there's a lot of fear in our culture and there's a lot of propaganda. And so that's really what kind of grabbed the thread for me and helped me to just realize that, oh, looking for plants and trying to take pictures of them and looking for mushrooms is totally fun and fine and safe and you're not going to just kill yourself by looking at a poisonous mushroom and you know, sort of breaking down that propaganda culture.
0: Did you always... Uh, like feel confident that you'd be able to develop some sort of career or you know path around this or where there are points at which I assume a lot of people were like uh what are you talking about
1: well I guess you know um so I played guitar from an early age and I felt very clear like I was going to be a guitar player and do that and As my parents were like, yeah, that's nice, but you should have a backup, my first thought for whatever reason was like, if I had a backup plan, I'd be putting half the time into playing guitar, therefore I'd be half as good at the guitar, so I'd rather just continue to push towards it, and they, of course— were worried and afraid, and thought I would just like not do anything and Then you know I ended up finding a band and touring for ten years before I started teaching foraging and I guess you know when I was young my I guess my Tory in nature, my resolve to just uh, try to work hard towards what I believed in. Uh, was really motivated also by many close deaths in my upbringing, which I realized like it helped me to reprioritize like sort of the the existential quest of the meaning of life. Like I could have more of a career and this and that and that, but will I be happy? And I don't want to die miserable. And because what I saw as people died in my life, as I saw everyone around sort of living in this tremendous regret of, I wish I had done things differently or said things differently. Um, and so I, I really felt at a young age, just starting to, get motivated by the fact of like, wow, life is really short. And I'd rather try to live my vision and my intuition and my goals and see if the universe will carry that through serendipity versus compromise and sacrifice that and end up miserable in a life that I don't want anyway. So um, maybe it's a little bit of just like fear of the box. You know what I mean by that? Like I hated the idea of waking up for school and having to learn this thing. And like, I probably would have been better homeschooled or something like that. But at the time that was in the eighties, that was like really unknown, especially in New Jersey. So I forced myself through public school to a certain degree, dropped out of public school as soon as I could, and then became the most astute meditating book nerd who had the internet you know and just researched and researched and played guitar and went for walks in nature and learned ended up learning about plants and mushrooms and now i teach it i don't know how that happened <laughs>
0: um i was taken when you said uh the thing about how you experienced a lot of deaths uh of people close to you i talk a lot about grief um and i think my own process of grieving in a different in addition to you know coming out of it with like a carpe fucking diem attitude was also that process or through that process that I actually felt totally reconnected to the earth. Um, I'm curious if you think about this, like the mirroring of our pain, the universe's pain, the pain of our species. Yeah.
1: So when I was in high school, my very good friend either committed suicide or was murdered. It still was unclear. And that started bringing me into the deeper existential questions. Where did he go? What is the nature of spirit? What's up with his soul? Is all that garbage? And I look at the society that we've been given and the mechanistic idea, like you just turn off. Come on. Like, is there more to consciousness than that Um, that started to lead me in some of that trail of just trying to contemplate the harder questions which most people don't you know I was 17 at the time so most people have that experience much later on and so that kind of um, existential crisis if you ride the wave like I remember the day that, that I got the call from this guy's mom saying that he had died and then it was like oh shit this is like really disorienting and then it was like go to school And literally, I remember being in class with my head down, bawling. And the only thing that anyone did was ask me to leave the room. You know, and 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 I was like, fine, don't you realize we're all going to die? Like, none of this matters. Like your grades do not matter. Like your evaluation of my mind and my capacity to learn these facts doesn't matter. Like what matters is something greater. And I wasn't really necessarily met with that. But, uh, you know, cannabis, mushrooms, uh, salvia, um, Carlos Castaneda books, shamanism books, the Internet, um, Alan Watts, Joseph Campbell you know, Terrence McKenna, all those uh, avenues started to unfold. And I really found a lot of guidance and insight through the fact that you can sort of mine the digital realm for the sort of the guru behind it all.
0: You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think if it weren't for the internet and podcasts and all of that stuff, like I certainly would have had no idea how to survive all of this shit. And also I, I think it speaks to you know, what we're missing so substantially in our world that's meant to help us through situations like this is community. We have such a lack of community across the board. Do you feel like with plants, like how does that tie in in terms of generating communal life?
1: Well, it takes me back to like being, you know, having dropped out of high school, was kind of playing music and was really sort of, feeling, struggling with feeling isolated. You know, I was on this very bizarre path, eating wild mushrooms and plants out of the woods. And I just wanted to have people to interact with who cared about those things. And at that time, I didn't have that. And so I would feel this like loneliness and despair to want that sense of community. But every time I would force myself to go out for a walk in nature and each time would be like this significant so-called distraction. Like I remember one time I found a um, Luna moth on a tree in the middle of the woods, you know, on a day that I felt kind of bummed out and I just felt like freaking Charles Darwin or something. I was like, what is this thing? Like, I feel like I discovered a unique thing. And of course they're very common, but uh, at the time I'd never seen one and that totally shifted my experience. And so that idea that ecology continues to ground us. You're never alone. If you're with the plants, you're never alone. If you uh, acknowledge the species around you in nature, you know, whether it's one day you'll see a fox, one day you'll see an owl, one day you'll see an inchworm. And I like the creative... Artistic expression that that's somehow like a setting of the tone of the day or the thought, you know. So, like seeing it as kind of a totem or an an archetype or an oracular, you know, metaphor for whatever I've been uh, experiencing. And so, that process and that practice, you know, remembering how. In Joan Halifax's book, uh, Shamanic Voices, which is a really weird coincidence how that book came to me, but there was one like uh, account of a shaman just saying, like, the spirits won't talk to you unless you're alone in the forest. You know, and so going in there and just having that experience, it was hard and it was difficult. And it brought out this sense of, like, now the allies of all the plants are our community and how can we sort of surround ourselves with them? And now, you know, I, I don't know how many classes I've taught since 2010. I've been teaching just about every weekend. So I don't know, a thousand classes, 1500 classes and meeting different people and connecting through ecology and connecting through plants and sharing wild salads or tinctures seems to just be continuing to thread those connections together. And I think that everyone, no matter how unconscious you are or afraid, once you get your hands in the soil, once you get your feet in the dirt, once you have that connection with something locally, it does fundamentally change you and and wakes up like the hominid in, in us that goes, oh yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. So that's really it. Just like turning that feeling on seems to be.
0: I love thinking of um, plants and nature ecology as a form of spirituality. Uh, I remember one of my first astrology readings ever, she was talking to me about developing a spiritual practice. And I personally grew up With just a complete lack of understanding around spirituality, or I didn't even realize spirituality was even a thing that existed. I was under the assumption that you were either like a part of an organized religion or not, and there wasn't really the space for you to come up with your own theory or belief in the universe um, and i remember her saying to me like in regard to developing a spiritual practice the example she gave was you know even if you need to like go outside and sit in a sweat, sweat lodge or go out camping and be by yourself that was like such it was such a radical concept to me that i could use the outdoors as a way to develop my own spirituality Um, do you feel like your interest in plants was kind of all inclusive? Like, was it curiosity? Were you coming at it from a spiritual perspective, health perspective, environmental perspective, all of the above?
1: Well, I feel, yeah, all of the above, but I also feel like I was on a spiritual quest, you know, like I wanted to, as a result of my friend dying and all that, like I wanted to deeply understand the nature of spirit and how it connects to nature. And so that was a sort of healing quest that I went through. And, uh, you know, my my mom used to take me to powwows and things like that. So I knew of a vision quest. I knew that that was important in indigenous culture, um, the idea that if you didn't know what you were going to do with your life when you were 13, they'd sit your ass on a mountain until you had a vision. You know, that's broken off in our culture. And so uh, for me, it was definitely a sort of desire to tie together the metaphysics with the physical world and try to understand the, I want to say the nature of spirit, but again, using that word is sort of like overplayed because we have been sort of culturally conditioned in a Judeo-Christian context to view that as either sort of through, you know, Jesus and the God that we know through the Bible or woo woo new agey fluff and anti biology. But what I'm really trying to do is say is there a physical a physiological counterpart to all things as you know energetic and that there are these two worlds because this is what the indigenous cultures the shamanic teachings say you know a shaman is one who walks with both feet in each world and that's very much what I think it is so i don't I don't think biology has to be desacralized and I think that's a great um, trauma in our society and our culture so the question is how do we weave that together you know and so even something as simple as choosing a sit spot and going out there for 15 minutes just observing and if you could do an hour you know transformation occurs as far as when you go in and you crunch your feet in nature things respond and it takes about 45 minutes for that to come back to baseline and then you could observe nature as if you were invisible and every time i've done that you know it gives a lot of insight and healing and you know the energy of nature is just totally healing
0: I definitely feel like our lack of integration with the outdoors is probably um, at least, if not wholly, then partially responsible for our ability to destroy the planet. Like we are conveniently disconnected, but when we get back to the earth, I think for me at least, there's this sort of like intuitive connection of loss and understanding. Um, But the farther we keep ourselves apart from that world, the less likely we are to have to confront the tragedy.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And that's kind of something we were talking about at the coffee shop this morning with a few people who'd come to classes uh, that I was teaching previously. Like this inability, this unwillingness to see a doctor studies disease and medicine. A doctor doesn't just study disease, uh, uh, healing, right? They study the cause and the fundamental relationship to disease and, and its causation. Now we see that as negative. And so what we do is we end up with our heads in the sand and we just want to think positive while we stare at TV screens. And then anything that's an anomaly out of that, we sort of shove down into the unconscious. So what I think is the last, you know, 150 years has been a process of denying the unconscious, denying this sort of id, this impulsive, you know, trauma that's under the current of the culture and suppressing it to the point where it's almost like turning inside out back into the culture and then we're. Like sort of spewing it all over each other And so now we're at a place Where our dialogue is reflecting That like we can't have hard conversations Without people taking personal attacks In 30 seconds or blocking them On whatever social media Um, So the question is like what are the maps You know how can we start to Establish a set of foundations Or rules or principles Where we can have the hard conversations About global warming or snow Or Donald Trump or The California wildfires without there being this polarized, like, uh, identity politics, like as if it's two teams trying to uh, destroy each other or embarrass each other, but come to solutions.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think we do that, at least in my opinion, as another way to avoid ourselves and our own participation in the madness. Yeah. (laughs) It reminds me, um, do you know, Gabor Mate?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, he talks, I mean, I've read and listened to him speak a lot, but there's One particular image that I uh, never was able to get out of my head, which is that he does all this research into the relationship between trauma and illness and addiction, um, early childhood trauma specifically. And he has gone to conferences and spoken in front of hundreds of professionals and doctors and presents stacks upon stacks upon stacks of evidence. And nobody knows what to do about it because in order to actually move forward, we have to look at our own Participation. Like, oh fuck, okay, if this is true, what does this have to do with my own chronic illness or the addiction of my child that they're suffering from? Um, Like, in order to confront this stuff, we have to confront ourselves. Um, I have this phrase that I say on the podcast a lot about fixing yourself to fix the world. Like we really have to go through that first.
1: Yeah, well, if if we remarry sort of science and spirituality, then we're back to alchemy. And alchemy felt like all physical counterparts had this sort of spiritual and metaphoric or archetypal counterpart. And so we have this, you know, this this phrase, as above and so below, as within and so without. And I think about, you know, cancer or even depression, like a woman was opening up this morning saying how, you know, she gets depressed and it's like depression is a side effect of the culture. And if you're not depressed at this point, you're just simply tuned out and you're on some kind of drugs, which you might want to share, because if you can't see the state of the world, if you can't see the state of the political situation, uh, the, the foreign policy situation, the contamination in the water, the air, the way the food is being grown as a a call to, of the earth, saying i need help quickly you know or or i'm gonna purge you all um we're just simply numbing ourselves and tuning out and how do we frame that as a beautiful part of the human experience not something that we want to deny because like i think about you know Okay, there's one option, which is to, you know, if if you're diagnosed with cancer, it could be like, well, you're just trying to jinx me, and I'm just going to reiki it away and think positive thoughts. The other one is there might be a tremendous growth in the sense of realizing this is a tumor. This is what it is. This is the nature of it. And then we can begin to work through it in a very different way. But the problem is, and I think why we check out is because we don't have the tools anymore. We don't have the maps. And I think that was what the shaman, the elder, you know, the grandparents in the culture did, they helped us to reweave the difficult experiences. If a husband cheated on a wife or a wife cheated on a husband, there would be a meeting, there would be a group conversation. If uh, you know, a father hit a child, the, the community would come together and they'd, they'd try to make it right again. And now we're living in such isolated ways where concrete walls separate us and, you know, even households, they close, they slam the door and barely see each other. People aren't sitting together to eat dinner anymore, and so the conversation is being stifled, 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 stifled with the advent of the idea, and I think this is a fundamental principle, the idea that your emotions are just chemicals in your brain, which is turning out to be complete bullshit, and that's actually the interesting thing, which, you know, whether it's with microbiology or whether it's through these new practices in ecology, um, they're finding that there's actually much more of a holistic system than individual species, like this is a false bill to say oh you're an individual species and if you're suffering it's because of yourself not because of all of your childhood trauma and the state of the world and your ancestral lineage and you know all the pain and the suffering that you've witnessed your parents go through without resolving and all that stuff is built up and and it's like it's like just pouring into our culture right now and there's going to be people who are who are Humble or brave enough or both to stand up and try to digest the shadow of the world, and other people who will just continue to try to force their head in the sand. But of course, that's why we have tremendous opiate addictions and you know, alcohol sales are rising. And
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, oh my gosh, so much. Um, I think first of all, this whole thing around depression, I'm super fascinated by. Um, I think I've talked about this a bit on the podcast before, but it's my belief. Uh, And I think just like grandiosity, so grandiosity in terms of over-controlling, over-performance, these are all modes of avoiding, right? Like, whether it's depression or um, distracting yourselves using some external shit in the world, it's all a mode of avoiding what's going on and the grief around that. Like, I was never someone who got depressed. It was the opposite of me. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this shit. And oh, how about this other thing? And look, I have this awesome job and a house. And look how successful I am. Like, how can you think anything's wrong? I'm doing so great. But all of these things, they're all modes through which we're avoiding authenticity, pain, trauma, and grief.
1: And maybe like we're looking for uh, quantity instead of quality. You know, when we slow down and, and say, is this quality? then it can scare the shit out of us. Because again, like, like I, I see it as this turning point with Jung. Carl Jung was kind of like a shadow worker for the whole culture and was starting to say, hey, look, there's this like unconscious, there's a spiritual dimension, there's shamanism, there's alchemy, there's the idea of psyche beyond just physio- physiological chemistry. But what happened is we sort of stuffed that down and we said, no, 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 no. It's all chemistry you know, cancer is due to genetics and some people just have bad genes and some people have good genes and that's eugenics. And and so our modern medical paradigm is literally the false idea that we'll fix whatever goes on with you because it's just chemicals. And if we figure out the right ratio of chemicals, we'll fix you. Now that's just being completely blown open. And, you know, emotional uh, pain is something that we don't really have a very good map for. So if you see a psychiatrist about your emotional pain they'll try to tweak your brain chemistry you know and if you see a psychologist there's a very few fringe people who will even try to help you acknowledge you know, well, what was your relationship like with your mother and father and your grandmother and your grandfather and these things? And then, you know, there's even less people who will say, let's do grief rituals. Let's figure out what that feels like. And let's hold space for you to go into those places and to wail and to cry or whatever it is to sort of purge that out of you. And then there's psychedelics, which are now coming onto the scene and they're making us vomit grief from ancestral lineages, thousands of years, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the fact that plants are being used to address intergenerational trauma, like it's just so cool to think about how those things are all connected. Yeah. So in terms of um, medicine and healing, we spoke a little bit about this before we started recording. And I'd mentioned that I come from the world of, you know, quote unquote, the health and wellness space. And I think, even for me, like someone who I consider to be pretty knowledgeable, I became a certified health coach. I struggled with a ton of my own health issues. So I spent like over a decade researching and learning about all of these things. And still, certainly for me, and I think for other people as well, that there's this huge misunderstanding around the difference between like holistic medicine and herbalism or uh, naturopathy. And I think going off of what you were saying a bit yesterday about like the synergy of the whole plant, I would love um, if you could elaborate on some of that.
1: Oh, so there's so many factors here. So you know, uh, the active ingredient in turmeric is not standardized curcumin. That's for patenting. The active ingredient in turmeric is turmeric. Every plant has been evolving based on the habitat and the ecosystem. And that's one of the ways that plants help us to access our ancestral lineages is they are ancestors and they have been sequestering the unique ratio of microbes, vitamins, minerals, et cetera, that has been in that soil. So literally the living history of the land and everything that's decomposed, died, grown is in the soil and the plants are pulling that up into their bodies and then we consume them. So first of all, they're informing so much lineage in us, you know, and... You know, I think that's a huge factor and not only, you know, according to the alchemical tradition, not only is there the physical component to a plant, but there's also the soul and the spirit aspects of the plant. Um, So what's happened in the idea to isolate chemistry is that, you know, and this was first through the alchemists, they realized that if you take plants and you distill them, you get hydrosols and essential oils, which they considered as the soul portion. And then you get alcohol if you ferment and that's considered the spirit aspect. And that's why we call it wine and spirits. And the idea is that every essential oil has a little bit of unique persona, a unique chemical ratio. If you smell rosemary or you smell lavender, you can smell a difference. And so that's like the soul, right? And then um, the alcohol, they all produce one kind of alcohol, ethyl alcohol. And so that's sort of of the spirit. And those are actually volatility differences. So the physical body stays when you distill the hydrosols and essential oils rise and the alcohol is distilled as well. Um, So within that paradigm, We have the ability to either sew it back together or divide it even further. And so now what we have are these sort of fads of dividing, dividing, dividing. So homeopathy ends up being an anti-chemical path. And it's like that may be helpful for soul and spirit conditions, But your bones need also physical minerals. If you break your leg, it's good to have the minerals within the plants. And there are ways of extracting those minerals, like we talked about the spagyrics or... um Or drinking a tea or adding apple cider vinegar and making a tincture or an acetate tincture. All these methods are to extract certain chemistry within the plant um, and then put it into your body. And so plants have that holistic aspect, which is why I like plants. When you start dividing when you make a tincture, you lose a little bit. You know, a tea, you lose a little bit. When you make an essential oil, you're starting to isolate parts of the plant. Essential oils are in the plant to kill stuff. So if you need to kill stuff... That's one thing. But not every illness, not every emotional disorder. If you're depressed, you don't need to kill things, right? If you have parasites, you need to kill them. If you have candida overgrowth, you need to kill them. If you have chronic inflammation, you may or may not have to target anything. So when we're isolating these plant constituents, we're also losing the holism. And yeah, you might need double the dose if it's more whole. But your body knows how to deal with molecular chains more than it knows how to deal with isolated chemicals. So if you inject vitamin C or vitamin D, it's not the same as eating a complete diet and herbs of these things. And I think what's happening is now we've come to like, oh, you practice herbalism, I practice Reiki. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, no, no. herbalism is not a paradigm. It it was food. You know, cilantro is not... uh, an extra thing, you don't just do it when you're sick, you do it to be more healthy, to tonify your organs, to clean your blood, um, to nourish your brain with unique chemicals. And so I think, you know, as we develop these different things, like naturopathy has a really great holistic approach as a philosophy, but then often the naturopathic medicines are isolated chemicals. Right, Some of them even potentially being synthetic instead of how do you get that from the foods um, that are surrounding you or the herbs. And so I just think that foods and herbs have much more of a uh, lineage with talking to the body and communicating with the body. And it's not about... Digestion, it's about assimilation. So if you take 30,000 milligrams of vitamin C, you might urinate out, you know, 29,999 of it. And an orange may have less vitamin C, but since it's in a molecular chain that your body's used to, it may absorb better.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, too, I was just thinking while you were talking, how I wonder if this idea that, like, the plants aren't strong enough on their own, we need to make them stronger, we need to enhance them is that also in part like this ridiculous assumption that we're trying to use plants to solve things or medicine in general to solve things that we need to address in other in other ways whether that's like soul spirit etc
1: and also like environmental like you know, cancer is potentially a uh, uh, partially environmental. You can't have dirty air and dirty water, and cure cancer with a plant in the middle of the jungle. It doesn't work like that. We're not going to cut down the Amazon rainforest and one day figure out the cure for cancer where you can smoke Marlboros and eat McDonald's all day and never get cancer because all you have to do is swallow this pill. So it's it's a We live in a holistic system and we rationalize ourselves out of the idea of a holistic system. And so we then develop non-holistic medicine treatments. But really every illness, like I think about, so, you know, eating fast food is definitely not good for us. But what is the mind state that brings someone to the desire to eat fast food all day? You know, and then how I keep thinking about like Candida is sort of a psychic hijacking versus the, the gut, you know, all the gut microbes secrete certain desires and cravings. Um, so that's a factor, too. But even the emotional childhood traumas of I don't deserve to sit down to do a cooked meal or like saying yes to tea is also a self-honoring process and we're just so go 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 and deny and you know we live in sort of a paradigm of martyrdom of like if you don't do everything for everyone else and ignore yourself and i think especially women or especially moms in this culture if you love people you will just run yourself into the ground for other people and if you ask for anything in return and if you need a day to rest you're not loving people enough and that kind of gets people into a a self-deprecating scenario
0: Yeah, totally. Um, So this whole idea about these interconnected systems from an environmental perspective, uh, again, coming from this world of health and wellness, I've had a front row seat to this debate around veganism, right? So plants versus animals. Um, I would love if you could talk a little bit about the sinistry between all of these different elements. So even people as well, right? So how people, animals, plants, et cetera, uh, all play a role uh, in creating a healthy and naturally functioning ecosystem.
1: Cool. Um, the way I usually try to tell the story is basically microbes built everything that's here and microbes had this sort of, evolutionary push to create higher level organisms to do things like carry them around and move them around like vehicles so bacteria built cars called humans to bring them all over the place including accidentally or not getting off the planet and so now even the what the the space station that's in the sky has algae growing on the windows whoops we didn't think that was possible so Basically, as microbes, you know, spread and inherited the earth, they became multiple-celled organisms and they started sequestering and digesting. And as they start sequestering and digesting, what we find is, like, for example, crustaceans, shellfish, right? That's some sort of, uh, calcium precipitation that happened in the ocean or something and now you get all these shellfish right then that breaks down and so if we look at where did calcium originate from right so basically if you know you take the big bang as a model for what happened not saying it's complete or anything but the idea is that as the earth cools right these minerals these base minerals start to sequester themselves and so let's track calcium so calcium becomes uh it, it cools calcium becomes something in the atmosphere right then, gravitational pull after billions of years cause planets they 're giant rocks right What is a rock? a composition of minerals, including calcium. Then, as these microbes grow, they start pulling out the calcium right other things they start secreting bio uh, uh, precipitating right piles of calcium which then something else sequesters into its body and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and part of that relationship is you have microbes, mycelium and plants. Right, So we get to plants and now they're starting to pull that up into their bodies and higher functioning mammals start to eat that and that's how we become upright because our spines then get more calcium out of the rocks and we then develop upright homo sapien and here we are the talking monkeys and within that stacked paradigm right now we're kind of in this idea of like we just got here on spaceships or god made us in seven days or we don't have a a biological historical context to how interconnected everything has been to get us to the point where we're at like so in my fingernails i have borrowed calcium that was in a brontosaurus you know, uh, a thousand or a million kinds of plants and something like calcium never becomes anything else. So even if a volcano spits out rock and melts it into a liquid, it will eventually cool and become the same calcium that it was before that. So if you track minerals, you, you start to see this fact that we're all borrowing from the previous, you know, and that's something I think we often don't acknowledge is that we are literally built out of everything that has ever happened here. And the plants have been going through that. And so also like thinking about holistic medicine means how can we sort of honor and not only honor, but continue to consume that evolutionary process and what's there are plants. Now we can say, well, we're just continuing that. Yes, And it's a little different because... We don't have the same biological measures that ecology has been using. We have rational measures. And so I think about, you know, blueberries in the grocery store, or the best one is strawberries. I mean, think about the evolution of strawberries in the grocery store in the last 10 to 15 years, right? You used to get sweet, delicious, tiny little strawberries. And now they're these monster things and they taste like air. And what that is is because we've been seed saving or genetically altering based on our mental desires, which is almost akin to plastic surgery. Because we're looking at size, sweetness, shape, very superficial characteristics. Biology wasn't. It was looking at genetic resilience, resistance to pests, immune function. We don't have that ability to see plants like that. So we've basically saved seed based on you know, characteristics which isolate, isolate, isolate. And as a result, every time we fix nature, we end up sort of breaking it. And so you see pharmacology like, you know, antidepressants, great state of the art. They're not really working. You know what I mean? As much as we're trying, we're also causing more harm. So it may be that we have to recast an understanding of what holistic really means. And it's not just massage. It's not just Reiki. It's not just herbs. It's not just homeopathy. It's not just allopathic medicine. If I get into a car accident, I'm going to the hospital, you know, but also incorporating all of those other factors, you know?
0: Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it actually almost reminds me about the theory behind this whole podcast. Like people always ask me kind of jokingly all the time, like, what are we going to do to save the world? I'm like, you got to listen to the fucking podcast. Like it really is about this holistic approach. Um, what are your thoughts on? And I guess this speaks to the practicality of moving forward and how we do that. But I find that there's always such a loss that there's a war between all of these differing concepts between plants and animals. Um, I, I just would love to hear your thoughts on like what, how that's happened and how you think we might be able to go about correcting it.
1: So part of it is returning to the old, and part of, part of it is building the new. So you know, there's this one you know turns McKenna lecture he was talking about how in the future we'll be something like you know uh we'll be living in our grass skirts digging yams next to the fire and then we'll sit down and we'll put on our like internet glasses and so the only sort of digital realm we'll have is a small device and then everything else can be this sort of almost archaic lifestyle. And so what we're trying to do is now recast the question of like what before colonization or what before what of what of pre-Roman culture or indigenous culture can we return to because they obviously were living much more sustainably, much more in tune with the earth, much more in respect for the elements, water, things like this. And as this bubbles out of the the unconscious or the Gaian last breath before something tremendously fails, we're starting to recast ourselves back and say, okay, what can we preserve here? What of the indigenous society do we want to actually say, no, you know what? We vote for you because it's way better to – feel like I'm living in harmony with ecology and living in a yurt or a debris hut or a primitive shelter and growing my own food and living off the land. So we have like basically pre-civilization and then we have agrarian. What can we say is good from that paradigm? And then we have sort of technological culture and what can we sort of preserve from all three of those paradigms and syncretize and hybridize into something more sane and more sustainable. And so, you know, some practical, somewhat ideas that I've been thinking of is number one, I think that the weeds are here to lead us into a cottage industry where if we were able to make value added products based on invasive weeds, we'd suddenly have discussions on land management and eco- ecological restoration and find ourselves basically in an uh, indigenous caretaking paradigm, which is like basically they'd wake up, they'd have a couple crude tools, and they'd say, How can I increase? biodiversity of plants, food, medicine, cordage, shelter materials, and they would prune and do horticulture, so to speak, on wild landscapes. So I think we need a return to that. We need to understand why these weeds have gotten here, how we can utilize them for local food and medicine, and sort of shrink our need base down from multinational corporations into local townspeople and employ ourselves through uh, creative expressions, um... So scaling down is also a part of that, right? How to embrace a more indigenous lifestyle. Um, I think van dwellering, van dwellering okay. is sort of a part of that, right? How do we, like I've got solar panels, yes, they're made in China, and, uh, you know, a van that's made from all over the world, but I still feel like I'm burning a lot less fossil fuels um, than people who are living in modern homes, you know, heating their houses and leaving it all day. Um, And then I also haven't plugged into the grid since I've had the solar. Uh, So I'm off grid essentially with my laptop, with my headlamp, which charges on USB with my phone. And that's pretty much all I use. Um, So scaling down is another part of it. And then how do we look to technology as a a double-edged sword, right? It can... It can destroy the entire culture. We could be leading towards some sort of replacing by super organism, technological machines that have actually been data crunching all the algorithms of every expression that we've ever put on the Internet, uh, shrunk down to a chip and put in the A.I.'s brain. And now the A.I. is so superior to, you know, humans that they become the workforce for the wealthy elite. That's one possible outcome. And then, um, you know. Who knows what our role will be? But if we can allow technology to actually be the foundation of spreading the best ideas, Right, made the best ideas win. If that kind of free market of ideas can be expressed through the internet, and if we can keep that free and open, and if we can start breaking down some of the boundaries, then we might have some of the most creative solutions. Um, so within that is like permaculture, within that is sustainable living, within that is eco villages, within that is scaling down, learning how to grow plants, um, you know, how to sequester carbon with things like composting. Um, Um, with things like growing biomass. Um, Any biomass is better than asphalt for sequestering carbon. Um, Growing trees again, doing community outreach. I think these are all the things that as we start developing, you know, I think of Andrew Harvey has a book called Sacred Activism. And I'm incredibly inspired that at the end of Standing Rock, it was just people beating a drum and being peaceful, not a big Violent, aggressive shootout. And I think that's kind of leading the way in how we can hold a certain energy um, to kind of force change, you know?
0: It reminds me of this book I read a while back called Rambunctious Garden. Um, and it speaks to the same concept that it's almost a complete waste of time to even think about going backward, per se, because what are we going back to, right? Like there is a natural evolution. Of things. So, this plant was bought to, brought to this land at a certain point. This animal was moved or migrated here. Like, how far back are we tracking this to? Where did the one mistake occur that we're trying to get back to? Um, and so, yeah, like incorporating all these ideas of, okay, we are where we are now. How do we utilize technology? And honestly, I think just the whole appreciation for evolution and progress. And I think that's such a nuanced and paradoxical idea because obviously there are these horrific and negative effects of civilization, but this idea of moving forward of progress in general, like it's just something that we as a species and as a planet are doing regardless. And I think where that progress goes and what it looks like can change, but you know, what is the best way to harness that natural progress?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think number one is talking about the issues and the ideas and like good ideas come out of all different kinds of people at all different kinds of times. And the more we democratize, uh, the government, the more we have a say as constituents in, you know, the political scenario, uh, the more the good ideas will bubble up. Right. So, Everything needs to become more sort of, uh, what would you call it, peer-reviewed. So when they're writing bills, they should be putting this out, and everybody should be able to make public comment to evolve it. Um, So we need to figure out how to continue to put pressure on The political situation to allow us in more, right, not making decisions on our behalf with lobbyists and doing things, you know, for our benefit, so to speak. But actually, how do we create basically a shareware of being able to vote? Right. So one example would be imagine if there was uh, an ability to vote on every policy right, or to at least poll let's say the US, right? So here's the policy, the green new deal, Ah, right? So what do you think about this? Pick this apart, give your feedback, give your comments, and then they could crunch that and say, okay, 65% of people agree. 25% of people feel this way. And we can at least self-review how we actually feel as a society. And I think that's being lost a lot, but there's a lot of potential within the internet. And then, you know, my other sort of Two two other proposals, which I'll just throw out there, is uh, one I like to call biology over technology, and it would be very simple. Basically, you're a corporation, you want to do business, and it says, how will you benefit biology? And you say, it won't. And you say, well, then you can't do it. And unless you have a plan to address um, remediating uh, the issue. So one of the ways I think of it is, imagine, so you have something like fishing game, or you have the DEA. Uh, uh, not Sorry, not the uh, – what is it called? The DEP, Devar- De- Department of Environmental Protection. And you have the EPA. So imagine if there was like a local – imagine if we want to fish salmon. And we're like going out there with our nets or our poles, however we do it. And the requirement is that you have to put – you have to go – Take these salmon, which are incubated by all these wonderful local jobs, by all these environmentally conscious people um, who are helping to incubate these not genetically modified, not antibiotic raised salmon. And they have all these eggs. And so you as a salmon farmer are required to release so many of them into the ocean, right? 90% of them get eaten, whatever you're feeding ecology. But whatever percent stays, you're actually pushing towards Cultivating the thing that you're taking. And so there should just be one basic environmental policy rule on corporations that you have to give if you're going to take. And there's poor examples of this, like carbon taxes is a joke for multiple reasons. But there's also like, how can you restore the habitat that you're taking from? How can you give back? And that could produce all kinds of green jobs, all kinds of things like that. Um,
0: Yeah. In terms of like the whole giving and taking... What is some practical advice that you might give people to get started learning more about this um whether that's like incorporating herbs or foraging uh beginning to do that like I would assume a lot of people get flustered or maybe I'm just projecting because this is my own <laughs> concern that or my own thought that appears but getting flustered or or overwhelmed at like we're fucked we can't go back and prevent any any of this we certainly can't go back and correct for the agricultural revolution in its entirety, especially given like the amount of people that are on their planet, like nothing I do, picking some plants outside, it's not going to make a difference. So what are some ways that you find are relatively simple to start um, and something that we might feel is actually having some sort of impact
1: Well, you know, whether or not it does make a difference, we're all going to die. And would you rather die having tried or having not tried? And so I just look at it as like, well, I'd rather give the effort that I can than be on my deathbed and wish I did. So is it going to make some great change? Who knows? Who cares? But is it going to make you feel more fulfilled in your life and therefore at least give the opportunity for transformation? So one of the easy ways is just like pick a plant, a wild plant a month and study it and get to know it and try to make some, you know, herbal remedy out of it or some food and properly identify it. And there's all kinds of Facebook groups and all kinds of things to get you integrated in that um, And then when you consume those things, it also gives you a sense of freedom. It also gives you a sense of wildness. You become feral. You know, Um, you stop shaving and get weird. Um, (laughs) You know, just this idea of incorporating something from nature into your body is tremendously healing on a very practical level. Um, And then it starts to bring us deeper into our relationship with our food right and that's what i think really needs to be questioned at this point where is your food source coming from who's your farmer that's where all the like you know farm to table and localization paradigm is starting to show itself and i think because of that um so if even if we're out in nature and we're just looking at one plant and Follow what, what calls to you, you know, just follow what thing in nature calls to you. And it may end up that you're now a marine biologist as a result of it, saving the planet from toxic sludge going into the ocean or whatever it is, like The one rule that we have of nature is that biodiversity is the goal here, right? So we have biodiverse culture too. So no one person has all the answers, but everyone has that little piece. And we never know in this day and age, especially through the advent of social media, who's going to break through the matrix, like Jane Goodall, right? Paul Stamets. These are the people that should be the presidents. You know what I mean? These are the people that actually have an ecological conscience. Um, So we now have the internet to override Those, like we could have Jane Goodall broadcasting every Friday night telling us what we should do about, you know, saving the endangered areas of the world. Um, So utilize the technology that we have, and also, um, it's not about. One little thing, if you do it, is going to completely change the trajectory of the history of all humankind. You know, Margaret Mead quote, uh, what is it? Never doubt that a small group of like minded individuals can change the world because that's indeed the only thing that ever has. And so, really, if we're all in and we're all just, we have the intent of showing up for the healing, showing up for the growth, showing up for the transformation. The universe will put its giant hand up your butt and start making you a puppet. And you never know, you might be preaching to some pesticide company or.
0: Yeah, Well, yeah. And like letting our intuition around these things lead the way, right? I mean, it reminds me of what you've said at the very beginning of this conversation around the smell of just one plant led the way for you. Um, And to follow that intuition and to see where it leads, like whether that becomes and turns into something that relates to health or spirituality. But I think that's just a really cool way to think about approaching these things, just kind of being quiet and listening to what our intuition is telling us.
1: And especially because the the chemistry, right, in each, the diversity of the wild plants, if you can consume wild plants, you're actually plugging your neuron receptors with chemistry that has been part of our evolution for a really long time. And so I think a part of our dumbing down is our lack of diversity of chemistry that we're getting from the ecosystem. And so literally, you know, that's why my goal is kind of like feeding people wild foods because I feel like it plugs your neurons in ways that the brain is begging for, the body is begging for. And so even that may increase your awareness and increase your intellectual capacity or your memory capacity or whatever, and sort of, uh, pull the uh, sludge from the inactive brain or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay. So this has been awesome. I feel like I could probably keep going, but I feel like that is a good, Stopping point. Um, So one question that I ask everyone is if you could recommend one book to everyone uh, on the planet, what might that be?
1: Well, I mean, we talked about sort of like steps towards, let's say, restorative ecology or something like that, and how we can sort of mend our relationship with ecology. And I think the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer is a really great way of bridging biology and indigenous perspective into, you know, regenerative harvest and interacting with ecosystem to receive food and medicine without sort of destroying it through exploitive capitalistic perspective. Um, So that should be mandatory reading. For all beings on the whole planet. So, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, Breeding Sweetgrass. It's a really beautiful book.
0: Cool. Um, okay, and where can people find you?
1: Uh, you can't, no. Um, <laughs> I have uh, social media. So, uh, Return to Nature is my Instagram handle. Um, Return to Nature Skills is on Facebook and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel there. And then my website is Return to Nature.us, and uh, that should be a pretty good start.
0: Awesome. Um, and you're traveling around right now, right? Like you're offering workshops and education?
1: Yeah, so this is my third tour across the country I did for the winter, um, sort of based in New Jersey. And there I've got some friends of the farm. And so we're going to be farming and growing herbs. And I'll do uh, in person as well as online mentorship in 2019. I'll be putting that on my website soon. And then for the winter, I kind of come and do a tour out west. Uh, so I just finished up, you know, I left New Jersey in October. I did probably 15 states or 20 states got to California, have been traveling around Cali and as soon as the weather thaws I'm gonna start heading east and within that I go to the you know the good foraging spots and collect seeds and mushrooms and uh sort of share and teach all over the internet about those kind of things. What I'm finding, uh look for communities, eco villages, sustainable farms, anybody who's just trying to throw down on homesteading and getting people together to do, you know, sustainably minded things. So be in touch.
0: Awesome. Um cool. Well, thank you again for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate it.
0: Hello again. Hope you enjoyed that episode, which I'm assuming you did because you're still here. Uh today the song I am going to play you out with um actually comes from a suggestion from a friend of mine, Natasha, who listens to the show. I had posted um that one of those Angels in America quotes on my Instagram stories a week or so ago saying that I was going to elaborate on it in this week's podcast episode. And she sent me a message and said, hey, there's this song called No River by Esme Patterson that reminds me of that quote. Um, And I listened to it and I thought it was awesome. And it totally related to not just the quote that I would posted, but I think the episode overall. Um, So listen to the, the lyrics back to my whole like playing a song that thematically works with the episode thing which I'm really into. And, um, yeah, so this is no river by Esme Patterson. To be honest, I haven't listened to any of her other music, but I should, because the song's pretty awesome. Um, other than that, uh, be sure to head on over to Patreon to support the show so that I can keep doing this traveling around meeting cool people and, uh, yeah. Talk to you next time.